Well, we wake up in a strange world these days. Can't, not a prophet, can't tell you all that's going on, but it's a strange world when you wake up and your dear Pastor John MacArthur is being threatened with jail time for trying to keep his church open. And when supposedly to support justice for black people, we have to celebrate violence on the streets. Ironically, some of that violence against black people. And where a woman judge is championed as the so-called rights of women to help women kill their own babies in the womb and is heralded as a hero. It's a strange world we live in. Certainly, I hope you can see from the way the world continues to press us or attempt to press us into its mold of thinking that you see that there's a crying need to learn to judge righteously. There is a time not to judge, of course, and we looked at Romans chapter 14 in depth, but there also is a time to judge. Not as the final judge of the world. You and I could never fill that role. If we attempted to do it, we would mess it up. It's God's prerogative alone to be the final judge, but God does give us a role. You might call it being a functional judge that goes on in the realm of the church, where cases of church discipline are to be decided. It goes on in the home where a father has to make decisions there. It goes on in society as well. God has given humanity the right to govern itself and to make judgments. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We've been looking at splatterings of the law of God. We don't usually take time to study Old Testament case law, as I mentioned last time, but Turn to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses gives an example of how it was very important when the people of Israel came to the land that they set up judges and that they had judges in the different cities. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is just an example of the judgment that God wanted going on. He's reviewing the history there as he's speaking, and he says in verse 16, chapter 1, Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Here are the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously. There it is. That's what we're supposed to do. Judge righteously. Between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. Verse 17. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. Notice. It's really God judging through our judgments. And then he says, the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. You have the idea of there being greater human judges that are more skilled. In our land, we have a Supreme Court. And so the hardest cases are supposed to go to them. And you can see the same kind of a setup that was in the nation of Israel. When Israel actually entered the land of promise... Um, Moses gave similar instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 18 that we are to have these judges in every single city in the land so that you can go and you can have righteousness and judges will judge rightly. Well, how would an Israelite learn to judge righteously? And the only answer that we've been given so far is that we have to learn to imitate the way God judges. That's the thesis for this second half of this series on judging. We've already covered three points about righteous judging. This is just review for those of you that have been here before. 
The first point is that God's judgments are righteous. We take that as the standard. We don't look outside of God. We go right to God and we assume God is righteous and therefore all of his judgments are righteous. We don't apologize for that. We go to him and that's where we find justice. If we want to know what justice is, what righteousness is, we go right to God. The second truth is that God judges based on his law. He gave this elaborate law to the children of Israel that we would be able to think about it. A lot of it is case law, but a lot of it embodies his, his character traits in the law so we would know how he thinks, what he values, what he will condemn and what he will not condemn, what is more important and what is less important. That's why this elaborate law was given, among other reasons. It was a great law. It was a better law than any of the nations of the world had. It was the best law that has ever been given to humanity. So he judges based on his law. He measures our lives against his righteous law. And the third way that God judges is based on our actions. He looks at our actions, and of course actions have to be proven by evidence, and evidence is proven by eyewitnesses. And so we establish facts from witnesses, and God ultimately will judge you and judge me based upon how we live. It won't be based on speculation, but on how you live your life. If you claim to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, that should show in your life. Unbelievers will demonstrate their wickedness in the way they live. And ultimately, God will judge based upon actions. Well, today we come to the fourth and the fifth way that God judges, and we're going to continue to learn from that. Before we do, however, we ended last time talking about a counter system of judging that's going on in our land today. I only got to just briefly mention it at the end last time, a false way of judging. It's based on a theological system that's been around for over a hundred years. Broadly speaking, it could be called theological liberalism. But it's had a great impact on what we see in our world and has been here in America and in the Western world for a long time, called political liberalism. They are not disconnected. They are, there's a connection, a logical connection that goes on with, with them. Political liberalism is coming into full fruition in our world today. People want to know where did it come from? What is the thinking behind it? Well, not all religions are merely religions. If you take a look at the world of Islam, for example, you see that Islam, the Muslim religion, is a religion. But when you look at what they do when they take over a country, it's more than a religion, isn't it? They take over all of the laws, they take over the judicial system, they take over the whole country, and they force all of the citizens to conform, not just to a religion, but to an entire worldview, an entire social economic way of living. That is also true of liberalism. Liberalism does not always separate religion and politics. I know we try to, but they don't. They go together to form their world view. Liberalism at its heart is a false teaching. It's a false worldview. It's one that is emerging now. And I shouldn't say it's emerging now, but its strength is emerging now. And it's energizing the current political movement that we're hearing so much about. Theological liberalism has many forms. It's gone through, it's kind of morphed its way through church history. Um, there has been neo-orthodoxy, which is sort of a reaction against it. There's liber liberation theology, and there are different movements that have ar arisen out of 
theological liberalism. But basically, it asserts that humanity is, is good. At, at the heart of man, he's basically good. That's not what we teach. We teach that all have sinned, right, and fall short of the glory of God. We teach that we're under the judgment of God. We teach that at our heart we've inherited a sin nature from Adam and we're under the wrath of God and this world is under a curse. We teach that because the Bible states that over and over and over again. Romans 3 says that there are none righteous, not even one. But theological liberalism says that humanity is basically good at its heart. We don't need saving by Jesus dying on the cross for us and his resurrection. Uh, God, um, as they understand God, is a God of tolerance and love and acceptance. He accepts all ways of living. Don't worry about how some people are living. Don't even judge them for areas in which God's law does judge them. There is no hell. We don't need to worry about that. A person like that's not going to follow the Bible to understand what is right and wrong. They're going to follow their own inner light as they see it. So what does humanity need? Humanity still needs a Messiah, still needs a Savior, but that, that Messiah, that Savior, that Deliverer is really humanity itself in its own education. It's sort of the evolution of man where man learns more and more and he increases his technology and his education and his science. He improves himself. And as he does that, he improves the institutions that rule over man. He improves the family. He doesn't go with what was in the past. He improves the family as he sees it. He improves government. He improves the different institutions of society. He's not working on the heart of man to have it born again and transformed and renewed in the image of Jesus. No, rather to fix the systems of our world. Humanism is really a similar worldview. They just do all of that without God. Humanism posits man as the final arbiter of truth. There is no God to appeal to, so we just appeal to ourselves. We're the highest evolved being around here. If we decide something is true and good, then it's true and good because there's no one higher than us. Liberalism fits very well with the goals of socialism that we see arising in our country as well. It has its own way of judging right and wrong, and believe me, it is not God's word. They seek to impose their worldview on all the rest of us in society. And how do they want to do that? And the answer is they do it through government. If the left has a gospel, it is big government. Government that will control life more and more. Now, you might hear that and say, ah, I don't like that. To them, that's a very good thing. The more government can control your life, the more they can impose what is righteous and just on all the rest of us. They promise that government will fix your problems, particularly if you are poor and underprivileged. And that is why they will fight and fight and fight until they gain control over all of it. It's a worldview, not just a religion. And with similarities to communism, they're using the grievances of some in society. And some of those grievances are legitimate grievances in order to get their foothold in and to gain power and to change society. And so liberalism, humanism, socialism, all that bundle of false teaching is literally emerging around us as a political power by aligning with and taking over as much as it can. First, it wants to take over your thinking, and that's what I as a shepherd and concern with as you are being bombarded by messages that are coming not from some seeming false religion but from the world itself preaching at you 
night after night and day after day, trying to control the way you think, take over the media, take over the universities, bring the heroes that you respect in sports and in Hollywood and Nashville and elsewhere and have them say the same thing so that in your mind you're like, well, that must be the truth. And then take over the money, take over big business because money speaks and if you control the money, you control institutions. And then, of course, you have to have a foothold in political power as well. And they've now taken over the reins of the Democratic Party. With this power, they are laser-focused on changing the institutions of American society from something as basic as the family to the way the church is allowed to operate, of course, to the judicial courts, to the laws, to the presidents, to anything they can get their hands on. Anything that smells of the old worldview, what we would call the vestiges of a Christian biblical worldview, has to go. Please, again, understand that in their mind, this is not about politics. It is their religion. It is their worship. If they had a great commission, this would be it. They approach politics with religious zeal. They are not friendly to our Christian values, and therefore they're not friendly to our American freedoms because the freedoms we were given as Americans were given to us based upon biblical and Christian themes. Now, we know there are plenty of things wrong with our country, with our nation, but we also know that all peoples, whether they're rich or poor, whether they are black or white, are going to benefit from a biblical government-type structure. The freedoms based on that view bless us as well. So it's imperative, beloved, that we learn to think, not as a black person or as a white person, not as a rich person or a poor person, but we learn to think to where our minds are washed and we think as a member of the kingdom of God in the midst of a corrupt society, that we learn to think in the core of our being biblically. We have to embrace God's worldview for ourselves, for our families, for our churches. And then we need to live out those biblical ethical priorities in every way we can even while we're patient with one another in our understanding of that and in the way we vote and in the way we understand what's going on around us. But you will not see them using God's way of judging. So don't look to them for that guidance. What will you see in their system of judging? Well, you will see what you're seeing right now. Right now it's going on. What are you seeing increasing? Well, first, there's going to be a lot of rushing to judgment. Judging by appearance, as Jesus said, don't do. With a rush to judgment, discussion always ends and mistrust begins, right? Because no one really feels they ever got heard. You start a discussion, it seems things are going well. Someone rushes to judgment, and there goes the discussion. Second, God's way of judging is being replaced by intimidation. Since they've already predetermined what's right and wrong, and your guilt if you disagree with them, then they can't persuade you with truth, and they can't persuade you with fact, so they're going to pressure you. You're going to have to conform now. And third, if you won't conform, then they'll resort to the tactic of slander. 
that's going on now. Also, I'm sure you've recognized it. You are a racist. You are not woke. You are a homophobe. You are a xenophobe, a sexist, uneducated. These are ad hominem arguments. They add no light to the discussion. They don't bring truth to bear. Let's discuss this and try to figure out what is right and wrong. How can we improve here? What really does need to be changed? No, it's none of that. It is just tear the person down until you don't want to be like that, and so now you remain quiet. By the way, from our scripture reading, we read what real wokeness is. It's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When Christ shines on your soul, now you have truly awakened to what is right and wrong. And fourth, another tactic that they are using is that they will use the power of media to control the very flow and facts of information. And this is maybe the scariest one of all. They repeat the lie again and again and again until you have heard it so many times you believe it must be true. And you start to expect other people to believe that as well because you've heard it so many times. They then put forward their best scientists, the smartest spokespersons, and to represent the other view, some fool who looks like, oh, he represented the conservative view. Oh, I don't want to be like him. He's not very intelligent. And then they give them less airtime. And then they use their fact checkers. Who's going to check the fact checkers, right? And they keep doing this again and again and again until one point of view looks evil and looks uneducated and looks stupid. And it's a very effective method. And it's working right now. And fifth, if those tactics still don't work, then they will simply cancel you. Canceling someone just means shutting them up by whatever means. If everything else up to this point in time did not work, then we will just yell and verbally cry you down so no one can even hear your voice when it is given. Remove all of the funding of any show that disagrees literally march around your building, intimidating you and crying down until you leave. Maybe change the rules on social media in favor of whatever their goals are, whatever they have to do. That's what's in operation. Ours is by no means a perfect country, but the framers of the Constitution of this country did not expect Christians to keep their opinions to themselves or hiding out inside of their little church buildings. We were to take our knowledge of right and wrong from this book and we were to live it out and trumpet it in every corner of society. That is being threatened today. We are supposed to be allowed to speak in all forums, in your workplace, out in public, But the pressure to conform and be quiet is getting greater and greater and greater. What is the church if the church is not a voice against all forms of falsehood? Brothers and sisters, it is time to speak up for what is right. If you don't speak and I don't speak, who is actually going to speak up for righteousness? How do we do it? We do what God does. It's not hard. It's not something we're inventing. We go right back to Scripture. We see how God judges. We see how God evaluates. It's actually pretty simple. 
When this whole series is over and done with, you'll be like, well, a lot of that is just telling me things I already knew right there in the Bible. Exactly. But so that you would not be confused about what's going on. Here's the fourth principle of God's judging. God judges based on equal application of the law. Fourth, God judges based on equal application of the law. God did not allow partiality or favoritism in any judging in Israel or in the church. Righteous judgment is equal justice under the law. The idea of justice means moral equity. Righteous judgment is the application of equity to moral situations. It has to be applied equally or it's not justice. That, by the way, is the biblical background to the engraved statement on our U.S. Supreme Court building downtown, equal justice under law. If the law favors you because of your skin color or because of your status in society or how big your bank account is or your political party or your friendship with the judge, that's not equity. And so it can't be biblical justice. Those who are in a majority in a land have a responsibility to make sure legitimate grievances any minorities have are thoroughly heard and then are rectified. When getting housing or getting a job or an education becomes harder because you are a person of color, that is not justice. It's wrong. When someone is wrongly treated by law enforcement or given a disproportional jail sentence... That is something that needs to be calmly and carefully rectified. Those inequities must be addressed in a land that's pursuing righteousness. Biblical justice and equity are bound together. They can't be separated. You know, the Bible references of God's judgment done with equity are numerous. I'd like you to turn to Romans now just to see the continuous thread of this throughout scripture Romans chapter 2 this is a chapter that speaks of God's judgment of the Gentile nations or the Jews also who think that they're moral anyone that thinks they're moral it starts out with the judgment of the Jew Romans chapter 2 in verse 1 it says you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things and he goes on to confront the hypocrisy of the Jew that thought he was safe with God simply because he possessed the law and Paul is saying no you're not safe if you want to be justified by the law you better keep it all of it of course we know that's not the way to be right before God we can never be justified by the law that's why we have a savior and we trust in him but go down to verse 11 at the conclusion of this section where it talks about how God judges and the right way to judge, he just simply states, for there is no partiality with God. None. God will not judge people in a partial manner. Since God doesn't judge that way, we can't. If we're going to be righteous in our judgments, we have to make sure as much of the partiality as possible is expunged. You might say, well, that's not really possible. Everybody has their prejudices. Well, that's true, but God did entrust judgment, some of the judgment to man, and he knew about that. And so we're to do the very best that we can. 
This idea of equity and judgment is found in the Old Testament as well. It's celebrated in the songs of the Psalms. You don't need to turn there, but Psalm 96 and verse 10 is a sample. It says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He, that is God, will judge the peoples with equity. That's how God's going to judge all of the peoples of the world. All of the nations will be judged. How will they be judged? By God with equity. He does it that way. Psalm 98 and verse 9 says something similar. The Proverbs celebrate the application of that wisdom in our lives. In Proverbs 1, verse 3, one of the opening verses of the Proverbs, it says, to receive instruction in wise behavior. What kind of behavior is that? Righteousness, justice, and equity. There it is again. You can't separate them. If you're going to be a righteous, just person, it has to be done with an equal application of the law. Mark it down. If justice is not meted out with equity, it is a pretend justice. And it is an offense to the God of the Bible. Now, how does one achieve equity in justice? Well, it's hard. You have to work hard on it. Our nation has not achieved it. It's still working on it. That's why there's conflict. That's why there's a legitimate grievance that is there. It's tried. It's failed. It's tried again. It's working through that. Will it ever succeed? I doubt it. I believe that can only really be achieved in the kingdom of God with the power of the Holy Spirit at work with us. But all the people rendering a decision have to be disinterested in the outcome. What does that mean, disinterested? That means that they, they must not have something to gain from the judgment that they render. They, they can't render a judgment and then benefit monetarily or by their reputation or by their status in society. The, the judge himself must be righteous in heart, must understand these things and want people to be treated rightly. No life can be valued more than another. Not black life, not white life, not rich or poor life. None of them in a courtroom must matter more than another for equity to be there. That, by the way, includes applications when there's someone trying to fight for the way they were treated by some giant corporation. How do they fight that in a country like ours? Well, they're supposed to be equal treatment as they face this behemoth of money and all the lawyers that they have. That's supposed to be there when conservative leaders are accused of the same things those that are liberal leaders are accused of. Are they treated equally when they come into the courtroom? Everyone watches very carefully to make sure that happens, and often it doesn't. Well, let me ask another question. What are the, the wrecking balls of equal justice under law? Well, again, whether we're talking about some smaller institution or something as large as our nation, the number one wrecking ball of equal justice is prejudice. It's just plain, old, ugly prejudice. Whether it is skin color, ethnic origin, language someone speaks, or whatever, prejudice is just that. It's prejudging someone based on completely irrelevant factors. Prejudice is 
only eliminated with the truth of God's word enlightening our minds that we are actually created beings, created equal, descended all of us from Adam, and all of us got off the boat with Noah. We are literally brothers and sisters. The number two wrecking ball, bribery, paying off those rendering the decisions or those in power, you know, the movers and shakers of society. This too ruins justice. Turn back to the Old Testament. I have you flying all over the place. Go back to Exodus. Show you this aversion God has against bribery embedded in the law. Exodus chapter 23, if you would, and verse 8. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 8. In the law, it commands, you shall not take a bribe. Why not? For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. The just people are coming to the courts to get equal treatment, but someone's paid off the judge. And it's a dead end for them. And they can't get justice. And God says, I don't allow it. Can't have a righteous nation that way. Well, since we're there, go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. You'll see this in the repeating of the law to the next generation. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17 says something similar, just giving you samples of this throughout the law. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan. Orphan can't pay anybody off. And the widow, and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Those in vulnerable positions are not taken advantage of, and they're not bribed away. You can also look up Deuteronomy 27 and verse 25. When Messiah returns, it states in a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, of the Messiah, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. People that are afflicted, that are not in power, do not have a voice, God will fight for them. God will judge on their behalf. There will be no favorites on Jesus' judgment day. And praise God for that. Amen? Another destroyer of justice, number three, is disproportionate punishment. Disproportionate punishment. There must be equal punishment under the law as well. Eye for a what? An eye, not a life for an eye. That's disproportionate. We've already looked at this before, so I won't turn to it, but Deuteronomy 19 and verse 21. Thus you shall not show pity... Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, equal, equal, equal is the point. Remember in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham was very concerned that God was going to judge and, and destroy the righteous along with the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he had his nephew Lot there with his family. And his statement to God was, far be it from you, the judge of all the earth, to uh, slay the righteous along with the wicked. That's disproportionate. Every single time there's a rule set up where innocent people are, are punished in some way because of the actions that other people that are guilty do, that's, 
There's something about that that just doesn't fit right with us, and we cry against it, and rightly so. God was testing Abraham, and Abraham said, you know, what if, God, you find only 50 righteous, or 45, or 40, or 30? What did he go down to? 10, right? And God said, look, I won't punish them if I can find 10 righteous. And so there's not going to be disproportional punishment. We're not going to punish the innocent along with the guilty. And then a fourth wrecker, wrecking ball of this equal justice is corrupt law enforcement. Corrupt law enforcement. Law enforcement, just listen to that. Law enforcement is a good thing. Law enforcement is as good as the law is. If it's a good law, we want it enforced. The Bible supports law enforcement. Of course it does. Because the Bible supports the application of law in society. If everybody loved one another, we wouldn't need a law. That's what Galatians 5 says. Against love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, there is no law. Nobody makes a law against loving your neighbor. But because we don't love our neighbor, there are laws. Because we want people to be treated rightly, and therefore there has to be law enforcement. It's utterly foolish to think that you can make laws and just expect people to obey them. Everybody's not loving. Everybody's not looking out for other people. If the law is good, then the enforcement of the law is equally good. And police who do that are doing a good service for society. They're helping all of us. However, police officers also hold that, like government officials, as a sacred duty. That is a high and a lofty position that must not be abused. They must apply their enforcement of the law equally, or they exacerbate the problem, and they stir up animosity against the very government that's trying to apply it equally. And they end up corrupting justice over time. So that must not be. So this is how God does it. It's pretty straightforward, is it not? God judges according to his own law. He bases all of his final judgments on the actions and the way we live, proved by, by testimony and by fact. And he shows absolutely no partiality at all. Thank God, by the way, if I were to pause right here and say that he did not judge me and my life this way, but he transferred all of the judgment that I should have got from my bad actions where if he had judged me impartially, I would have been condemned to hell. Thank God he didn't do that to my soul, but he transferred all of the condemnation upon his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which would be a thoroughly unjust act if Jesus Christ had not himself volunteered for it, laid down his life to pay the full penalty for my eternal destruction and yours as well. Don't ever forget how great that gospel is. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that the son would be condemned for the things he did not do and we would be rescued. Our guilt imposed on him and Christ's righteousness granted to us freely. But there is a fifth way we need to talk about how God judges, and that is that God judges individually, not socially. Now, this is not absolute. I'm going to clarify what I mean. God judges individually, not socially. 
What I mean is that in the end, your life, my life, is going to be judged as an individual. Sure enough, God has the ability, because he knows the hearts of every man, woman, child, to look at a civilization as he did with the Canaanite civilization at the time that Joshua was commanded to enter into the land, and he was able to say to an entire civilization, the sin of that civilization is completed. Joshua, I am now ordering you to enter into that land and slaughter every man, woman, and child, and in many cases the animals as well, and wipe them out because I am the creator of all of them, and I can see into the hearts of all of them, and I can judge them as a group. Because my understanding is great enough to know when sins are complete or not complete, why now and not later, and why to this proportion. But only God can do that. I could barely judge myself, much less a whole group of people. How would I be able to know everything going on inside of that group of people and all the factors that have affected them to render anywhere near what could be called a righteous judgment? And neither do you. This is the same God who could look at the entire world and say to Noah, I'm going to flood the whole world and everything that has the life, the breath of life in it is going to perish. God gets to do that because he's the maker and he knows all things and he's the absolute standard of justice. Nobody can imitate him in that. But what I mean is that in the final analysis, God is not going to lump me with some group of idiots to condemn me. <laughs> and I'm very grateful for that. And he's not going to lump me with a bunch of really good people to exonerate me either. I am going to have to be judged based upon my individual life, and you're going to be judged that way also by God. He doesn't lump us together with someone else's actions and then call us guilty or innocent. This really goes along with that third principle about God judging us based on our actions. And we've already seen this at the great white throne judgment. It says books are open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. Each one of them was judged that way. So God looks at their entire life and he does a careful evaluation. And he brings out what their sins are. And he very carefully gives exactly what a person deserves. That's why we don't believe that hell will be as equally bad for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. I'm sure Hitler's going to have it worse. That doesn't mean that there's a nice comfy part of hell. That just means it goes from bad down to very, very, very bad and worse, right? The thief on the cross verbalized this justice principle in Luke chapter 23 and verse 41, concerning Jesus, he said, well, concerning himself, he said, we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, pointing to Jesus dying on the cross, has done nothing wrong. He was probably perplexed why Jesus was being punished. God's individual judgment is repeated throughout Scripture, but I don't think that there's anywhere in the Bible where it is more emphatically stated than in a rather obscure chapter in the book of Ezekiel. Would you turn to Ezekiel chapter 18? Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18 is what you might call a chapter that 
kind of repeats a similar truth over and over again. The main thesis of this chapter is that God treats each person according to their own sin, or he treats each person according to their own righteousness, not that of another person's sin or another person's righteousness. Another way of putting this is that God judges us as individuals, not as members of a group. Now, if there was one group in all of the world that you might think it would be right to judge you as a part of, what group would that be? And the answer would probably be your family. Probably be your family. You know, God has even warned in the passage on the Ten Commandments in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, that God visits the iniquity of the fathers down on the children to the third and the fourth generations among those people who hate God. However, our grouping is not the main way that God relates to us. We come before God as individuals to be judged, and this overriding or this controlling truth is stated in Ezekiel chapter 18. Look down at verse 4. In verse 4 it says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. This is the main way God relates to our souls. It teaches individual responsibility for your own actions or your own inactions. It also instantly gives hope to all of us who think that maybe we might be lumped in and bearing the guilt of somebody else and we can never escape bad luck or this dark cloud that follows us around in life. The prophet Ezekiel opens the whole issue back in verse 2. He does it by quoting a proverb that seems like a decent proverb. In fact, it has a measure of truth to it. Look at verse 2. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. <laughs> you know, the children are, are affected by what the fathers do, in other words. Well, I think that's pretty easy to see in life if you were to look around in life on an individual basis. You could kind of spot the truth of this proverb at work in the generations inside of a home. I think it is true that sons and grandsons and maybe great-grandsons and daughters are impacted, whether negatively or positively, by the way the previous generations in a home live. Yet that general truism, and that's what a proverb is, it's a general truism, must not be pressed too far, as it seems the nation of Israel was doing, and thus the need for the prophet to correct their use of this proverb. God is still the sovereign judge and savior of every single soul, and he must be allowed to govern his own creatures with love and with justice on an individual basis. Otherwise, he can never render perfect justice. Well, that gives all of us hope, and it also gives all of us accountability instantaneously. Every person now knows they can respond directly to God and seek God's reward and escape God's condemnation. doesn't matter what daddy did. doesn't matter what your son will do. Well, the chapter goes on to explain the important direct relationship of a man and his God. Look at, just scan, we only have time to scan this, verses 5 through 9. It speaks of a man who does rightly. Let me read it. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines, that's with uh, 
idolatry, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, or defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman during her menstrual period. If a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covets the, covers the naked with clothing. Verse 8, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from inequity, and iniquity and executes true justice between man and man. If he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Well, then in verse 10, the question comes up, what if that righteous man that practiced all that good stuff has a bad son? How will God judge it? Well, verses 10 and following, again, just to summarize, it says, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother, dot, dot, dot. He goes on, and he goes on to repeat all of these sins. Well, will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Please notice that very important reoccurring strand there. His blood on his own head, not dad's. That just trumpets individual responsibility before God. Please don't think that this is only an Old Testament principle. When we were studying about not judging our brother in Romans chapter 14 and verse 12, it made it very clear when we die and we go before the Lord and we stand at the famous seat judgment with Christ, he's not going to ask us how our brothers and sisters live. He's going to ask us how we live based upon all the temptations and all the factors we face, which he knows, and thank God he knows it, and we don't have to explain it to him, but he will say, how did you individually live? What were your particular actions? It says in that verse, Romans 14, 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That's how God judges. Not as a group, but as an individual. And if we go on in Ezekiel 18, verse 14 asks about the son. What about the reverse? If he is righteous, but his dad is not. And in verses 14 through 18, it kind of brings that up. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all of his father's sins, which he committed and observing does not do likewise. What's going to happen to this guy? He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. And on it goes. The explanation is reinforced by answering the objection in verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. Verse 20, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. And then comes that very important statement, the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And so to the rest and the end of the chapter, Ezekiel shows not just individual responsibility, but even when someone individually commits apostasy and goes away from the faith, that doesn't affect the status of the father or the son. If you want forgiveness from God, you go directly to God. If you're part of a family that practices wickedness and false religion and has been involved in the occult, 
It doesn't matter. You go directly to God. He'll save you and help you. With God, in this sense, there is no group judging. There is no group salvation either. Verse 21 says, If the wicked man turns from all of his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He will not die. Praise God he deals with us like this, right? The conclusion is down in verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. This principle of judging guards us against saying, oh, so-and-so is your father? Oh, you must be like this. Oh, you're a Native American. You're an Asian. So, therefore, you must be like this. That's very, very bad judging. God, who can judge groups, doesn't even want to do that. How does this apply? Oh, there's many ways to apply it. I'm running out of time. I remember when I was a fourth grade teacher, one of the rules I made in class was, don't punish the innocent kids along with the guilty students. <laughs> Sometimes teachers get frustrated. They turn around and there's like 20 in the class, and he thinks most of them were talking, and he says, all of you lose recess today. Well, that's the quickest way to lose the confidence and support of your students. You just punished 17 innocent people along with three guilty blabbermouths. It's very bad judging. Maybe the foremost thing in your minds right now is this idea of social justice. What is it? Is it even justice? Christians want to know, what does the Bible say about social justice? Well, the Bible simply does not add the word social to the word justice. We need to use God's terminology. It speaks of God's justice as sufficient. I know that people use terms in different ways, and so you have to be careful when you're reading different people what they mean by what they're writing. But the idea of social justice usually involves group justice. But group judging is unjust. God's justice is impeccable, and God's justice is pure. It doesn't need any other kind of justice to help it along. Yet these days, people make social justice seem to be the good and the reasonable thing. They say things like social justice eliminates all forms of social oppression from European dominated times. Supporters of this try to dismantle everything that is Western or white or European or, yes, to some degree, biblical. And Christians who mean well get sucked up in this, thinking that they're doing God's will. But justice has to be redefined, not the way God defines it. It has to be placed in a humanistic construct with unbiblical goals. And now, 
the Bible, and even God himself can be seen as part of a system that is oppressing people and is wrong. Prejudice against any group is not justice. Prejudice against whites is not biblical justice. Social justice, when it's used to be prejudiced against men leading in their homes, ah, this is a male patriarchal society and women are being oppressed. And so we need to stand up for the, those that are oppressed. Viva la revolution! And women arise and you have to join the side of the feminists and now biblical teaching is seen as wicked and evil and oppressive. Or against heterosexuals who are the dominant ones and are oppressing the homosexual. Or against Christians and their Bibles, you see. Thus the hatred even of those symbols that we're seeing being fomented out there in society. We all know whites should not and really cannot be judged as a group any more than Asians can be or Hispanics can be or blacks or Indians from the country of India, I mean, or Native Americans. Sometimes we judge older generations and say, ah, you just, you know, or we judge the younger people and say, ah, you're just younger. We put them in a group. Sometimes it's rather innocent, but it's still not accurate. That kind of judging where you put people into a category is really designed in the long run to create competition and to rip apart things, to tear apart unity. Imagine if all of us thought of ourselves primarily as part of our ethnic background group, would we be able to hang together in unity as a church? When a country thinks of itself first as part of a race, well, you can see that getting people to think that way is intended to rip apart the nation. It's designed to do that. You can't get unity that way. The critical race theory that has been in the news, I'm sure some of you have read about it, as it's called now, really reflects old lies. The attack on European culture, and Europe had its set of sins, just like any other group of people had their set of sins. But attacking that culture is a racist attack as well. By the way, you say, well, it's easy to say you're white. My daddy was from England, from what my brother's research says. My mommy's background is Armenian. That's not Arminian, which is a bad theological system. But Armenian with an E, that's a little more Middle Eastern. That's why we consider our skin color more olive. But the Armenians have been butchered and slaughtered and oppressed down through their history as well. Just read what the Turkish people did to the Armenians. And when you look into the background of, you go far enough back in the background, you find all kinds of terrible things that have happened to people all over the world. But you go back and think about judging people based upon the group they belong to, or the sins of their ancestors, that's not just tricky, that is, that is unjust itself. How can one even do that? If you're going to put yourself in a group, put yourself in the group that God put you in. He put you in a group called the body of Christ. 
and he redeemed you and he paid precious blood to put you there. And he said, that's how I now view you. When I come here to Old Bible Church, I don't see black people or Asian people. I see people that are closer to me in spirit than any other people in the world that I long to be with, that I wish we could just get rid of these, these thingamabobs, what are they called, and just hug one another because we're really that close to one another. But we have to think that way. We have to think that way. Because that's how God thinks of us. The socialist judges the rich as a group. They cry for the redistribution of wealth. And that brings with it an underlying false understanding that all or most of the rich got their wealth wrongly or they took advantage of the poor in order to get their wealth. That may or may not be true. In many cases, it's not true. And it's a bad understanding of how the economy works anyways. Redistributing wealth itself is an act of injustice if someone earned their wealth. It also doesn't help anyone who's had a pattern of poverty to learn how no longer to rely on the government, but to learn to generate their own wealth for them and for their family. It's very clear, and, and if we had time, we could study the law of Moses, how wisely balanced it was to give careful breaks to those that were unfortunate and were poor and had fallen into indentured servanthood and gave them a break and freed them from debts and gave them places to glean for their food for free and yet did not make them completely reliant on them, but gave them an avenue in which to build their own businesses and, and have their own land and keep their own dignity. So much wisdom in God's law. Christians most certainly are to have compassion on the poor and give in a volunteer sense. We are to stand against the evil of racism. And wherever you can speak up on behalf of somebody who has been hurt in this church or taken advantage of, do that. Speak up on their behalf. Treat them as your brother. But inequities cannot be solved with the injustice of socialism. The danger of this group judging goes way beyond finances and the economy. To be truly against oppression, social justice demands we join many other causes. I mentioned feminism and homosexuality. Social justice is being used as the rationale to even destroy the nuclear, biblical, and traditional family. Indeed, it seems social justice, if it got its druthers, would put the blame all the way back on the human situation on God's shoulders himself. And no wonder Christians are hated by them. We can be too naive in seeing that something has a measure of truth, but swallowing the whole philosophy and end up, and end up having an increasing sin even more. Right now, Christians are getting sucked in through social pressure because they don't want to be called names like sexist. It's the in thing now to put your rainbow up. You're a rainbow sticker. Look at me, I'm tolerant, I'm loving. I get it. I understand social justice. You know, because I bet you, you felt the pressure. But again, I say you must 
follow God's justice. You must. We are not to support same-sex marriage. We're not to support the right of women to kill their own baby in the womb for God's sake because of fairness of the sexes. That is perverting God's justice. We are not to let each person choose their gender. God already did that. That's not justice. That's a perversion of justice that has the word social put in front of it. We are not to defend criminals on the street when they're proven to be criminals. If they've clearly broken the law, they are not our heroes, and they are not to be celebrated. The social justice construct if it's taken to its logical conclusion, conclusion would serve to justify violence to bring down the whole society. Ah, and that is exactly what some people are thinking. Write it down. God never gives any of us the right to do something that is wrong. That old adage is still biblical, guys. Two wrongs never make it what? Right. You can't bring justice by an act of injustice, even if you call it justice. This is that point in time where the preacher's got to wrap things up. It's such a big issue. I hope you do come out to the uh, forum and ask your questions and that we can be careful and thoughtful about all of this and go back to theology and good Bible exposition. That's what we're about, guys, to look at all the issues like that. That's what keeps us together. That's our mission, that we see those things when others don't. That's why I hope Bible Church exists. If we don't do it well, we got to improve it. This is a big and a huge issue, and hopefully you'll stay dispassionate about it in some way and study God's word carefully. Um, I believe that darkness is invading our country. Not that it hadn't already, but I think it's flooding in right now. I, I've questioned God myself. Why am I placed in such a position that I'm so weak physically now at a time where it seems our church needs a louder and a stronger voice. But there's a lot of satanic deception that is going on now, and voices need to be heard. And Satan really does disguise himself as an angel of light. You need discernment. You need to know what's going on. The Bible says when the Antichrist, the man of sin, arrives, people will hail him as the Messiah. They won't be able to tell the difference between right and wrong. Well, I think we're being set up right now where people cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. And Satan is at work. Follow God's law. When you follow God's law and God's way of judging, you see more clearly than anybody sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court that doesn't see what you see in God's law. You would be a better appointee because you know righteousness from God's law. Even if you didn't know all of the cases and you couldn't quote them, you would know the difference between right and wrong because you know the law of God. Each one of those Supreme Court justices, after they die, they will stand before the Supreme Judge. 
and he or she will give an account of the judgments that they rendered and whether they were righteous or whether they were wicked. As for me, I'm going to hang in there and wait for the judgment of the just judge, Jesus Christ. It says in John 5, 22, that God the Father is so confident in God the Son that he has given all judgment to the Son of God so that all will honor the Son of God even as they honor God the Father. And it goes so far to say if you don't honor the Son, you can't honor the Father who sent him. One of the beautiful things, and I bring us back to that closing passage in Revelation 19 where there is this is this hallelujah that is given in Revelation 19, verse 1. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. And then you have this scene where John says, and I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it, whose name is is faithful and true. And Jesus comes back and Jesus judges the nations. And Jesus uses all of this righteous judgment against the nations of the world, applying each one particularly. I, I, I'm going to be satisfied in entrusting my soul to that kind of a judge and in waiting until that kind of a day. And I hope that you will as well. And in the meantime, in our imperfect way, we work for the Son of God. We live for the Son of God. We wait for the Son of God. And we do our best to judge others righteously the way the Son of God will do that. Father, thank you for taking this feeble attempt at explaining such a large subject and pray that you will impress the truth of justice, true justice, from you on the hearts of our people. Pray it in the mighty name of Jesus, our judge and Savior. We all pray. Amen.